Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Who in the Lord's name does Putin think gives him the right to declare new so-called countries on territory that belong to his neighbors? This is a flagrant violation of international law and demands a firm response from the international community. Well, that was U.S. President Joe Biden speaking a little bit earlier here this afternoon, announcing new sanctions against Russia after what he calls and and what I think objectively is an invasion of Ukraine. It was quite an ominous speech yesterday uh, from the Russian president, uh, airing out a long list of his own grievances, uh, seemingly longing for the days of the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union. Uh, and making all kinds of wild and conspiratorial claims about the situation in Ukraine. So it certainly appears as though we may be on the verge of a full-scale invasion. I, I think it's it's fair to argue that we already are seeing an invasion, as Russian quote-unquote peacekeepers have moved into these uh, disputed uh, territories of Ukraine that Putin has decided to unilaterally recognize as independent. Uh, so it appears as though Putin is doubling down, and I guess the question here is, how do we need to respond? If we're going to impose sanctions... We need to make sure that these are meaningful. Like, this is about as serious as it gets, short of of an actual hot war here. So joining us to talk a bit more about the situation that's unfolding and how the West needs to ensure that we respond in a meaningful way. Uh, Very pleased to welcome to the program somebody who's watching all of this very closely. Marcus Kolda joins us, uh, founder of DisinfoWatch.org, a senior fellow with the McDonnell-Laurier Institute Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad. Marcus, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me on, Rob. Well, that Putin speech yesterday was quite something, and we've obviously now seen uh, the Russians starting to take some action here, moving uh, troops into Ukraine. So where, where do you think we're at right now? Well, you know, I think a lot of us saw this moment coming. Uh, A lot of us predicted that uh, Vladimir Putin would do exactly as he's doing right now. That is to uh, declare the uh, recognition and the independence of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, the Donbass, eastern Ukrainian region of eastern Ukraine, um, because uh, a lot of he already has hardware there. He has boots on the ground there. Um, Half of that territory. Um, is controlled by militias uh, that are supplied and, like I said, controlled by him. So this is a, uh, an easy maneuver for Vladimir Putin to do. Um, you know, uh, it's hard to see where he goes from here, whether he goes what's being called the line of contact. This is a, a border, essentially, that splits this territory in half. The western region is controlled by, still controlled by Ukraine, the eastern portion controlled by these Russian militias, um, if he pushes his military beyond that line of contact, um, it would almost certainly trigger a Ukrainian response. They would have to respond because um, this would be, uh, this would signal a, an invasion of 
of Ukraine. I mean, uh, mm-hmm. just going into these territories that are controlled by these militias, that represents an invasion already, as you stated earlier. But it could get worse if he crosses that line and could become quite bloody. And so that's what we're keeping a, the closest eye on right now. Um, if he does that, it could signal that he's prepared for a broader conflict, one that might, where his uh, focus and his objective might be Kiev or controlling other parts of Ukraine further to the west. If that's the case, um, the conflict is going to turn extremely bloody. Uh, Ukrainians and the Ukrainian army are motivated to defend their country. And Vladimir Putin has, of course, as, as everyone has, has heard over the past few days, has somewhere around 150,000 troops around the border. So, um, you know, I think everyone is hoping that uh, Vladimir Putin's objectives will be limited to these territories that he already controls. Um, we're going to place some sanctions on him. Hopefully that will deter him. But it really depends on how we respond in the next 24 to 48 hours. I think that will determine for Vladimir Putin what his ultimate objective will be. You know, it's interesting on the disinformation side, which you follow closely. I mean, obviously, yeah. Putin, you know, has, has firm control of, of the media in Russia. And there's all, been all kinds of wild stories in, in Russian press about, you know, these ostensible Ukrainian security threats that the Russians yeah. are facing that need to be dealt with. But, but even in the West, you know, Marcus, those who would otherwise consider themselves anti-war, anti-imperialism, uh, finding ways of blaming the West for this or, or defending what Putin's up to. I mean, it's, it's very strange. What do you make of that? Uh, well, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, I scan uh, Russian language, uh, state media, and, and RT every day for some of these stories. And, uh, and some of the narratives that are being promoted right now are, are just simply outrageous. Um, there are suggestions, and, and Putin uh, actually mentioned this during his speech yesterday, um, there are suggestions that um, Ukraine is seeking to become a nuclear power so that it can um, target nuclear weapons at Russia. I mean, it gave up its nuclear weapons in 1992 um, in return for assurances from Russia that uh, Russia would respect its, uh, ter- uh, its territory and its sovereignty, along with the U.S. and U.K., who were promised to support that. Um, you know, R- Russia is clearly not... Uh, recognize that that treaty uh, and is suggesting that, again, uh, Ukraine is trying to arm itself with nuclear weapons. There was another story last week that suggested that NATO is arming uh, is arming some of the its eastern members, the Baltic states and Poland with nuclear weapons so that it can attack uh, Russia. I mean, some of these narratives are completely unhinged um, and they support the broader Russian narratives, which suggest that Russia is some sort of a victim of NATO, that NATO has surrounded uh, Russia and that it poses some sort of threat to Russia, whereas we're, you know, NATO is a completely defensive organization. The U- Ukrainian people, Estonians, Latvians, Lithuanians, Poles, the only thing that they, they're focusing on is getting on with life, not with attacking Russia. So, you know, these disinformation narratives are, are abundant. They're on Russian state media and, and unfortunately they sometimes trickle into, uh, Canadian uh, sort of dialogue and political debate as well. So in terms of a, a response here, I mean, you know, on the sanction side, and we heard the U.S. president talking about sanctions. I mean, already we're seeing, you know, in Europe, uh, the British prime minister has, has moved. It looks as though Germany's uh, maybe going to, to press the pause button on this Nord Stream pipeline. So I, I think yeah. we're starting to see some meaningful response, but are, are we where we need to be yet? Well, it's a good point about Germany. I mean, Nord Stream 2, which is this gas pipeline that connects uh, Russia directly with Germany, um, this is an important aspect of sanctions. You know, Germany has announced that it is 
is pausing and is halting the approval process for this for this pipeline. Um, and that's important to Russia. Russia relies 50 percent of its income comes from um, from exporting gas to Europe and abroad. And so a pause on that is is extremely important. And it's quite a surprise because Germany has been rather soft on Russia. Where Canada can really play a uh, an oversized role here is by targeting uh, the corrupt oligarchs who enable Vladimir Putin. And many journalists have suggested that a lot of these oligarchs, they keep Vladimir Putin's assets for him abroad. Vladimir Putin doesn't keep, uh, you know, bank accounts in his name uh, around the world. He, he uses proxies to hold that money. And a lot of that's done through oligarchs. We know for a fact that there are several oligarchs who have held hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in assets in this country through various companies. And they continue to do so to this day. And these are this is money that's hidden in plain sight. There's publicly available information about this. It's not hard to find. Now, if you were to target those uh, those oligarchs who do have those assets here, freezing those assets, you know, make barring their access to them, you can guarantee that their first complaint will be to Vladimir Putin. They will ask him, why are you doing this? I can no longer access my money or your money. And I will bet, uh, I would bet the farm on it, in fact, that Vladimir Putin would adjust his calculus, his war calculus, to make sure that those assets aren't frozen. So, you know, that's one of the things that we can specifically do in this country. And we should also be uh, looking at Russian state media. You know, Russian state media has an open pipeline into Canadian homes. RT, in fact, is piped into 7 million Canadian homes. Um, this is a primary source of disinformation, as we were talking about earlier. And we need to make sure that Canadians are protected from this and that we don't allow Russian state media the ability to manipulate our political debates. So we should be placing sanctions on those Russian state media outlets so that they can't use our airwaves, and we should be yanking our, our, their licenses as well. So that's one of the you know one of the basic things that we could do. But there are a number of others, including sending more lethal uh, defensive weapons to uh, Ukraine and and making sure that we increase the number of troops who are stationed at our mission in Latvia and and creating a permanent NATO base there to deter further Russian aggression. In terms of how effective sanctions could be, I mean, it, it certainly seems like there's, you know, a, a domestic political challenge that, that, that exists for, for Putin and, and maybe a, a restless population. I mean, if, you know, if we can yeah. respond in a way where there's, you know, some meaningful consequences, does, is, is, how vulnerable is Putin to that, do you think? I think he's quite vulnerable. Um, you bring up a good point. Uh, Vladimir Putin is not very popular at home right now. In fact, uh, the polling from a few months ago and this is official polling, mind you, so, you know, we have to question those numbers, had him around 30% or just below 30%. So realistically, that means that he's probably polling somewhere in the in the 20s. Uh, last year, around this time, it was in fact January of 21, when Alexei Navalny, the, the well-known anti-corruption crusader, uh, returned to Russia. He was arrested, of course, and there were mass demonstrations across Russia in minus 30 degree temperature weather, um, and Vladimir Putin had to engage in a really violent crackdown and has been cracking down on dissent ever since because of because it's just it's simply growing to that size. Um, and so it's under these conditions, the fact that, you know, Russian incomes have fallen precipitously over the past 10 years. And there was uh, the Russian Auditor General just reported two years ago that uh, one in three Russian hospitals doesn't even have running water. Um, 
the Russian people are looking west. You know, there's no doubt that Russians, regular Russians, would prefer a European future. They're looking to countries like France and Germany, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and wondering why can't we have what they have? Vladimir Putin has failed to deliver any any uh, progress as far as quality of life is concerned uh, in the 22 years that he's been president. So, yeah, I mean, Russians are starting to wonder what's going on. And this is one reason why Vladimir Putin is doing what he's doing in Ukraine, to create a distraction um, so that the, the Russians, the regular Russians, aren't necessarily focused on the bare cupboards in their home, but on the television screen to see what's happening there. So, you know, Putin needs this conflict, as he's had all of his life. He's lived from one conflict to another to consolidate and grow his power. This is part of that playbook. We'll see what happens in the days ahead. Much more is mentioned. Uh, disinfowatch.org. Also, uh, McDonaldLaurier.ca. Marcus, uh, always appreciate it. Thanks so much for making time for us here. Anytime, Rob. Thanks for having me on. All the best. Uh, Marcus Kolga, uh, Senior Fellow with the McDonald laurier Institute's uh, Center for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad, uh, and also founder of uh, disinfowatch.org. Well, welcome back, folks. Rob Brickenridge with you. It has been an eventful few days, obviously, in the nation's capital, both in terms of what was happening on the streets of Ottawa, but also what was happening inside Parliament. Now, Friday into Saturday, even into Sunday, was the police operation to clear out any remaining remnants uh, of this uh, convoy, this blockade, this occupation, whatever you want to call it, uh, this prolonged presence in downtown Ottawa by supporters of this so-called Freedom Convoy. Uh, That now is over. Uh, so the streets of Ottawa have been cleared, uh, at least of protesters. There does remain, uh, to a large extent, uh, a police presence. Now, inside Parliament, uh, of course, uh, the debate was paused briefly, I-, I think, on Saturday and resumed around the uh, declaration of the Emergencies Act, the invocation of the Emergencies Act. The uh, vote ended up last night, and the vote was to continue with the powers granted to the government under the Emergencies Act. Now, the Senate is debating, and there will be a vote in the Senate, uh, and a vote against this uh, could put an end to these powers. Otherwise, it will have to be renewed after 30 days. So there is, well, there's two questions, I suppose. One, uh, did the situation as it existed last week justify the use of the Emergencies Act? And does the situation as it stands right now justify the continuance of the Emergencies Act. Remember, these border blockades have been cleared, and now the situation in Ottawa appears to have been resolved. So what is the basis for continuing with these powers? Well, there's a letter signed by a number of uh, academics and experts urging the federal government to put an end to this, that these powers granted under the Emergencies Act need to be revoked. One of the signatories uh, joining us this afternoon is Dwight Newman. He's a professor of law at the University of Saskatchewan, Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Rights and Constitutional and International Law, and is also with the uh, think tank called Advocates for the Rule of Law. Professor Newman, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Oh, well, thank you for having me on. In terms of those two questions, whether the justification existed last week and whether the justification exists right now, is is the former question somewhat moot at, at this point, or how do we assess this, this situation as it stands now? Well, I mean, the former question is still one to think about in terms of accountability to history, but the question today is, is it justified right now? 
Um, uh, because that's what the uh, Senate or the House last night was voting on. The Senate is voting on whether to continue this at this point. Um, and as more and more of this has been cleared, um, it becomes all the tougher to uh, to say that uh, that this is needed. Um, but the question of whether uh, whether there was a sufficient legal basis in the first place is, of course, important in terms of the precedent that is set in terms of the very first use of this act. Now, there are different kinds of emergencies that a government can declare. This one specifically was was declared to be a public order emergency. And what's interesting, and maybe you can expand on this, is my understanding is that that particular emergency doesn't really allow, allow for the government to argue that a situation might be imminent. And so in order for the powers to continue, the, the government's really going to have to demonstrate that there is a, a clear and present threat. Is Is that the case? That's right. I mean, the, the statute doesn't use quite those words, but that's uh, that's what it comes down to in some ways. Um, and there, uh, the the definition of public order emergency actually links on to the CSIS Act, uh, certain definitions in there. And the definition, the part of the definition that they're relying upon here is one that's really used um, to define terrorism. Um, and there needs to be uh, essentially a... Uh, presence of serious violence or threats of serious violence in a technical sense that's mm-hmm. akin to terrorism in order to meet the uh, the standard on the uh, the branch that they've indicated. And uh, we wrote the letter because we didn't think that their explanation, the document that they filed um, and are required to file, um, either provided that evidence or even alluded to that evidence of that level of threat. Right. And so even last week, then, as as some of this was still unresolved and clearly there was a considerable presence in Ottawa on the part of these protesters, even then, uh, you don't believe that the government had, had justified the, the use of these powers? Not the use of the Emergencies Act. No, I mean, uh, clearly uh, the, it was appropriate to do something about this protest that had turned into a much longer uh, presence in Ottawa than I think anyone had foreseen. Um, that's not something that uh, that should continue. But other police enforcement powers uh, could have been dealt with that. And as we saw when they were actually applied, uh, which could have been done before the Emergencies Act as well, um, this was actually dismantled in fairly short order. Um, and the Emergencies Act is meant to be triggered based both on these very high thresholds of what kind of threat is there, um, as well as the need for the Emergencies Act rather than the use of other legislation. And we, uh, again, just didn't see that need for this very extraordinary piece of legislation to be used. Now, it's been pointed out by some that the state of emergency declared by Ontario's premier also allowed for many of these these same kinds of of, uh, powers to be used. Does that weaken the federal government's argument that this was necessary, especially if Ontario had already created a situation where where these kinds of uh, tools could be used? Right. Well, the the Provincial Emergencies Act are a little bit different from province to province. But the very fact Mm -hmm. that Ontario had invoked its um, created uh, certain kinds of uh, authority that uh, that could be used uh, and that would have been usable in place of many of the things that happened under the uh, the federal uh, statute. To be fair, one thing the Ontario statute may not have explicitly provided for would be requiring tow truck drivers to participate in clearing. Um, but even that, there would be ways around that or, or ways possibly finding that in the Ontario statute or uh, just 
once they ended up uh, having the tow truck drivers operating in disguise, as it were, um, they probably could have done that without needing to invoke the Emergencies Act to get them on board. Right. And those seem to be the, you know, the two examples of, of the response that, that some have cited in defending the use of these powers is, you know, as you say, marshalling the, the resources to tow some of these trucks out of the downtown and to cut off the financing uh, to those who were, were still a part of this, this convoy. Were there other ways of, of dealing with that? Yeah, well, I mean, the the financing, again, is a dimension going uh, beyond what was under the Ontario legislation. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a particular means of addressing the emergency that doesn't in itself uh, justify um, invoking the Emergency Act, or it's a particular means of addressing aspects of what was going on. It doesn't necessarily provide a legal basis for using the Emergencies Act. Now, there are other things going on in terms of the funds. Uh, there have been these uh, Mariva injunctions granted in the context of civil uh, lawsuits that are going on, and the Mariva injunction freezes funds. So that's being done by people that are suing the protesters in some context. Um, I guess the government, the federal government, is now speaking about passing legislation to, to have that in place longer term. Uh, there's actually an argument, uh, and a very strong argument, that's been put on a blog by a a leading administrative law scholar, Paul Daly, that um, the uh, the financial provisions may not even be permissible under the public order emergency section of the Act, that there, uh, there are other parts of the Act that allow for financial measures, and the public order emergency doesn't seem to have the language to support that. There are a lot of interesting questions around that um, as to whether this was really needed um, and whether this was uh, even permissible. Uh, we don't get into all of that in the letter, uh, but I just say there, uh, there are going to be a lot of legal questions ahead around those financial mm-hmm. measures. You do note in the letter the, the tension, I, I suppose we could call it, the tension between the Emergency Act and the Charter, because, you know, theoretically, as you note in the letter, actions taken under the Emergencies Act are subject to the Charter, but... You know, that that seems hard to reconcile, especially we've we've touched on, you know, some of the the financing responses, you know, sort of compelling tow truck companies to to be involved. So how do we reconcile the two? Well, I mean, the steps taken under the Emergencies Act are still subject to charter challenge. Um, But of course, the invocation of the Emergencies Act at the same time um, sends a, a bit of a message to the courts that the government is saying that they think that this is a context in which they have an extraordinary basis to limit uh, charter rights um, and to apply the reasonable limits clause and so on. Um, uh, There may be challenges around um, particular aspects of what was done there. Uh, I believe that's some of the basis for the Canadian Civil Liberties Association lawsuit about the the use of the Emergencies Act is in fact about the the charter implications. And so those will be tested out in court. Um, the uh, the adoption of the Emergencies Act in its current form was actually um, post-charter. It was, it was uh, a modification of the War Measures Act in part in response to the existence of the charter, and there's some complex reconciliation that goes on there. There is the whole question of the rule of law, which uh, we, we've alluded to here, and what kind of a failure this represents, the, the failure to, to respond to this situation, even, even previous situations where you know, lawlessness as a tactic uh, seems to not only be accepted, but, but almost seems to be, um, you know, almost seems to work, almost seems to be effective as, as a tool. And the fact that we need to resort to such extraordinary measures just to maintain the rule of law seems like we, we've got a real problem in this country. 
Indeed, and uh, I mean, I've, I've written before on some of these other situations, as have others associated with advocates for the rule of law, that the breakdown in enforcement um, in uh, various situations where the rule of law has been affected by uh, different kinds of protest activity that has gone on for long periods um, or dramatic departures from the rule of law, like the burning down of churches, um, these, these sorts of things that have been let go um, in the past, um, I think, have probably contributed to an environment where people thought they could get away with a lot uh, in some ways in the context of deciding to settle down in Ottawa. And there could have been enforcement earlier on aspects of what was going on in Ottawa. We didn't see that. Uh, government sat back for a long time. And there... I mean, there are competing things there in terms of how do you resolve a situation peacefully. Um, some people probably inflamed it a little, um, but uh, there there can be reasons sometimes to uh, take some time to try to resolve a situation um, uh, peacefully and with respect for protesters, obviously. Um, but uh, there have been breakdowns in the rule of law and not enforcing the law. And then the concern that we raise in the letter is that one breakdown in the rule of law shouldn't be allowed to beget another. And in a sense, that's what's happened here, where the breakdown in enforcement has led to the use of this extraordinary piece of legislation uh, with um, uh, these far-reaching powers uh, on a slim legal threshold. Well, we'll see where this all goes from here. In the meantime, this letter is posted at thehub.ca, also much more at ruleoflaw.ca. Professor Newman, I always appreciate the insight. Thanks for making some time for us here today. Well, thank you for your interest in this. All the best. Uh, that is Wade Newman, professor of law at the University of Saskatchewan, Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Rights and Constitutional and International Law, and uh, also involved in the uh, think tank Advocates for the Rule of Law, ruleoflaw.ca. And he's one of the signatories to this letter that concludes, Thusly, we would respectfully urge all members and senators to vote to revoke the declaration of emergency. The rule of law demands no less. So the vote in the House of Commons last night was to extend these powers. That has a 30-day clock ticking on it. The Senate, though, is debating and will vote. And a Senate vote against the Emergencies Act would bring an end to these powers. So was it justified last week? Even if you want to argue maybe it was, how is it justified now? You know, and maybe this was inevitable given some of the uh, supply chain inflationary issues uh, food retail and grocery stores are dealing with right now. But this is going to be something to keep a close eye on uh, because we got a big uh, tiff here between one of Canada's biggest food manufacturers and the country's largest grocer. And there, there's going to be some fallout from this. Maybe there's there's going to be more of this to come. But this involves Frito-Lay Canada. And Loblaws, which owns, you know, superstores uh, and, and other grocery retail chains across the country. This is a dispute over pricing. Frito-Lay Canada, uh, they make brands like uh, Doritos, Lay's Chips, Sun Chips, Cheetos. They're facing higher costs. They wanted their prices raised, and Loblaws said no. So now... Uh, Frito-Lay's is uh, escalating the fight. Uh, they are going to stop selling to Loblaws. So what does this all mean? Well, our next guest says this uh, war might just be the tip of the iceberg. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois is a professor of food distribution and policy at Dalhousie University, senior director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie. Dr. Charlebois, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Rob. 
you know, as you noted, uh, you know, people can follow you on Twitter at Food Professor, that uh, th- this has been years in the making. So it, it didn't just originate with some of the more recent pressures on, on the supply chain, but I'm sure that had a big impact. How did we get to this point? Well, so this stop-sell tactic uh, has been around for years. Uh, what's new, though, with this situation is, is, is the scale of it. I mean, you're looking at the largest employer in the country, Loblaw, um, uh, basically uh, having some issues with uh, PepsiCo, which is one of the most, one of the largest agribusinesses in the world, and uh, and they operate many plants in Canada, uh, manufacturing chips, and so so you're talking a lot of SKUs in a grocery store. So if a company like PepsiCo stops selling products to Loblaw, consumers will notice. <laughs> They'll be empty shelves for sure. And uh, I, I think someone let reporters know that this was going to happen, which is why we started to hear uh, rumblings uh, at the end of last week. Uh, I think most people were focused on Ottawa, which is why uh, we we weren't hearing much about it. But I certainly noticed uh, that it came out. And uh, over the weekend, a lot of people noticed that uh, that uh, in the chip section of the grocery store, uh, there were no chips. Either there were no chips or uh, there were tons of yellow bags, i.e. no-name bags yeah. or President's Choice bag, white bags. As you mentioned, PepsiCo owns Frito-Lay, but at this point, this this stop-sell approach—it it just it's just Frito-Lay products for now, right? It's not you know bottles of Pepsi, et cetera. It's just it's just on the snacking side, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so you, it, so brands that people would know would be Ruffles, Doritos, Lay's, uh, Miss Vicky's. Those are the products that you you won't be able to find at, at Loblaws. And I mean, I, I I don't I haven't spoken to anyone at uh, Loblaws or Pepsi, but my guess is that Pepsi came in with a new uh, list of of prices for its products wholesale. And when you sell, when you're a vendor, you have you have a suggested retail prices. So you'll suggest to the retailer, these are the prices you need to use for my products, for my mm-hmm. brands. So my guess in this case is that Loblaw said, you know what? Uh, these prices aren't going to make us competitive. Products aren't going to move as much. You're taking a lot of space in my grocery store. That's too high. So we're going to keep on selling your products at the same price as before. And that's probably when PepsiCo pulled. That would be my guess. Interesting. So they, they asked Loblaws to increase the price of the product on the shelf. Couldn't they just have increased the wholesale price, just charge more to Loblaw, and Loblaws would have had no choice? Oh, they probably did. <laughs> yeah. They probably did, yeah. So, yeah, they don't play around with margins. Uh, they probably did suggest higher prices, explaining to uh, Loblaw that the cost to produce chips uh, has gone up. Now, what Loblaw is claiming today is that, uh, well, according to their calculations, uh, what uh, is being asked by Pepsi is is uh, is inappropriate. Uh, and so this is this is really what's interesting uh, because many years ago, grocers didn't know much about processing and and vice versa. So people said, well, you know what? It's costing me so much to produce. So could you trust me and I'll charge you more? And that was that was it. Yeah. But now 
because of private labels like Loblaw, for example, into President's Choice and No Name, they manufacture their own food. They have uh, contextual manufacturers, so they know very well how much it costs to produce chips because they make chips themselves. So when they right. come in, when they sit down at the table, who's got the power? Loblaw, not PepsiCo. Yeah, they do. And, and I mean, I guess the thing is that they can say no to Loblaw's request for price increase, but if... Or, or to, to uh, Frito-Lay and PepsiCo's request for a price increase. But if, if Loblaws wanted to do that on their own, if Loblaws woke up one day and said, yeah, let's charge, uh, you know, 50 cents more for a bag of Cheetos, they, they could do that, couldn't they? Oh, absolutely. But for a, pe- for a company like PepsiCo, they would be concerned because they don't want they, – they need market discipline. Uh, so if they mm-hmm. see one retailer sell their products, I don't know, Ruffles at five bucks a bag, and the other retailer will sell their product at $1 a bag, guess what's going to happen, Rob? <laughs> All of a sudden, people uh, will go into some sort of a price war, and it will dilute uh, PepsiCo's brand equity. And that's the last thing they want. That's why it's important to maintain product discipline. And that's probably why they pulled, because they didn't want to compromise on brand equity. So what's likely followed from all of this? I mean, we may see more of this tension between grocers and, and you know, food producers, but, you know, do we need some further clarity on, on rules, uh, maybe, a, you know, code of conduct here? What's what's going to come of all of this? Yeah, so first of all, for listeners who's thinking, well, who cares? Uh, we're just talking about Pepsi, which is a multinational, and, yeah. and chips. Who cares? Well, actually... We should care because this is not just about chips. I can tell you right now, other companies, some Canadian-owned, Canadian-operated, family-owned businesses are facing the same challenge, but they just don't have the same cloud as Pepsi's. That's one thing. Secondly, uh, I mean, this is is about manufacturing jobs. Uh, This is about making sure that the supply chain does work for consumers. If you get rid of one option in manufacturing, well, prices are going to go up. You have less options as consumers. So the code of conduct to me, or the code of practice to me, is the solution. So companies can go to an arbitrator and settle things before it gets ugly. And so right now, unfortunately, we're beyond that because it's out in the open. It's going to be really interesting to see where this all goes from here. Sylvan, thanks for calling attention to this and uh, joining us here to talk more about it. My pleasure. Take care. Appreciate it. There you go, Sylvain Charlebois, Dalhousie University, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab. On, you know, what this whole tiff between PepsiCo, Frito-Lay is the brand that they own, so it's essentially PepsiCo versus Loblaws, two big companies. You know, one a multinational, but in this instance, Loblaws definitely has uh, some leverage. So PepsiCo says, can you raise the prices a little bit? Loblaws says, you know what, we don't want it. So now they've pulled their product. So that's a big gamble on their part. It's something that's going to impact consumers for sure. You know, maybe with this or or the next fight that comes up with some of these companies. So you factor in everything else going on, supply chain issues, inflationary pressure. You know, it's it's just it's something else to throw into the mix that could have an impact on consumers. So something to keep a close eye on. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. 
Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.